Hey, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for that introduction so much. And good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. A wonderful, beautiful day. And uh, trust you're sensing the Lord's presence with you already in our wonderful time of worship. So my name, as Kevin introduced, is Mike Thornber. I'm one of the elders here at Greenbelt. And as you may know, Pastor Kevin has been working through a series through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter. And last week, uh, Ron Maybe was here. He spoke about Jesus healing the daughter of Jairus, who is the synagogue ruler. And Ron reminded us of Jesus' challenge to us, don't be afraid, just believe. Ron's description of Jesus as the ultimate first responder has really stuck in my mind this week. This week, we're looking, we're following on for Mark 5. We're looking at Mark 6, and this is a story about Jesus visiting his hometown. And the people there show an amazing lack of faith. So this is another passage about belief, belief in Jesus. So let me ask, what is your faith level? What is the level of your faith? Let's say on a scale from 0 to 10. 0 meaning you have no faith at all. 10 means you're willing to pray and move a mountain. Where's your level of faith at this point? So is there something we can do, and I'm speaking to myself as well, to increase our faith? So let me just pray as we get into it. So Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, we thank you that we can learn about faith this morning and what that means to us and what that means to us as a body of Christ. We pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word and how it speaks to us as well. And we just glorify your name today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the passage we're looking at to start. It's from Mark chapter 6, again, verses 1 to 6. And again, this is right after Jesus had raised this young girl from the dead. So he moves on. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And scripture says, as they approached Jerusalem... I am in the wrong chapter. Isn't that fascinating? I'm in the wrong place. Here we go. Okay. Sorry. So Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom? that they has been given, given him, that even he does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So this is the story of Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth to teach and minister to those who he grew up with. Again, he's just raised a child from the dead. Perhaps the greatest miracle, his greatest miracle up to this point. And now he chooses to visit his hometown and experience their lack of faith. We're told that on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach the people, which is his normal pattern when visiting a town. And many who heard him were amazed by his teaching. They recognized Jesus' skill as a teacher and his wisdom of the things of God. And word had spread to Nazareth about his miracles, and they watched to see what Jesus was going to do 
what miracles he would perform. But they had a problem. They knew Jesus as a child and as, as a young carpenter learning from his father. And Jesus, of course, started his ministry at the age 30. So there's all through his 20s, he was in Nazareth working as a carpenter, being quite experienced at it, I guess. So that's how they related to Jesus. That's how they saw him. The town was small, though, and everyone knew everyone. They knew his four brothers by name, and I'm sure they knew his sisters as well by name. Not only that, but Jesus came from a lower class of society. He was a carpenter, after all, and he was not brought up in a wealthy home with a tutor, having easy access to the ancient writings. Mark writes that they took offense at him, and they appeared to be annoyed with him. They may be thinking, who does he think he is? What could be so special about him? How could someone so ordinary be the source of his wisdom and deeds? But people's familiarity with Jesus made them unable to see beyond their preconceptions to the Messiah standing before them. Jesus was not, was not able to do any miracles except, as Mark mentions, a few healings. That's quite amazing, actually, that Mark says that the few healings that Jesus did weren't miracles. So I wonder what he considered miracles. They must be far beyond that. <laughs> Mark writes again that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Imagine Jesus, Jesus being amazed. The townspeople thought of Jesus only as a prophet and a lesser one at that seeing the limited, limited number of miracles that he could perform. So what then is the basis of faith in Jesus? If we say we have faith in him, what is that faith really based on? And what is your faith based on? If you've grown up in the church, did you watch other people to see how they lived out their faith? That was true for me, and Greenbelt was our first church, the first one we really committed ourselves to, we were pretty young. We were just married. And we looked around and we looked at the people in that church and we said, gee, these are the people we need to model ourselves after. We watched to see how they lived and how they interacted among themselves. So for you, how did that work out for you? Were you at a good church? Were the people you modeled good examples of, of Christians? Do you, base your, do you base your faith today on what others have done or what God has done in your life? Or is there even more? For the people of Nazareth, their faith was based on their limited knowledge of Jesus as he was growing up. They would have heard reports, of course, of Jesus doing miracles and deliverances and so on in other towns. But for some reason, that wasn't enough. They needed evidence themselves. They would have been happy to see Jesus perform some miracles some of his wondrous acts, so that they might believe themselves. But in God's economy, in God's way of doing things, faith and belief must come before results. Faith and belief has to come before results. So looking farther on in the chapter, there's a short passage on feeding the 5,000. So let's turn to that. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 35. So by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's late in the day. They're hungry. 
and it's kind of a remote area perhaps. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. So his disciples went out, talked to, wandered about the crowd. You can imagine seeing, who's got fish? Who's got loaves? Who has, uh, how much can we collect? And they came back and they said, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000, and it doesn't even count the number of women and children there, so there were many thousands of people there. So in this story, we learn how Jesus took five loaves and two fish, blessed the food, and was able to feed the thousands of people there. And after the meal, again, there were 12 basketfuls of food left over. What were the disciples' reaction? They were incredulous at first that Jesus would ask them to feed the people with such a small amount of food. You see, at that time, their faith was not based on who Jesus was, but only on what they had seen him do in the past. So their faith was not based on Jesus as the Messiah. They hadn't clued into that at this point, but only what they had seen him do in the past. It was as if Jesus, it was as if the disciples had a scroll like this one, listing the miracles that they saw Jesus perform so that they would have faith to believe in him again. Let's see. Turning water into wine, we have good evidence that indeed he did that. Working miracles of healings, yes, there's evidence for that. We've heard that well. Deliverance from demons. Emotional healing. Calming the wind and the waves. Forgiving sins. That's on our list And leprosy, he's healed people from leprosy. We know that Jesus can do these things because we've kept track of him. He's the wonder-working prophet, and and, uh, we have total faith that Jesus is able to continue doing these things in the future. But it seems that when Jesus sees disciples performing miracles beyond those they have seen before, they're surprised as their faith only goes as far as the list of miracles that they have seen him done, seen him do in the past. Is that how your faith works as well? You can believe God for the easy things that you have seen him do before for you, but when something new comes along, does it become beyond your faith level to be even impossible for Jesus? Are there things that you want, you could see Jesus doing in your life that you think are impossible because you haven't seen him do that in your life or perhaps in anyone else's life. Just as as an aside, this is kind of a Pauline interjection here. Have you ever created a reminder, a list of what Jesus has done for you in the past? Perhaps the events are written in your journal or you have a physical reminder of the event. 
you'll remember that when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and, and God worked a miracle in their midst, Moses would often set up a pillar, a pillar or a memorial stone to remind the people of God's faithfulness to them. Perhaps you have reminders in your home of how God met your need in a special way in the past. For me, they serve as points from which I could not go back from. For example, I have a journal, and when God, for many years, when God affects my life in a powerful way, he reaches into my life, he speaks truth, he changes it in some way, I'll write it down in my journal. And then later on, if I feel discouraged or afraid or thinking or doubting at all, I can look back at my journal and I can say, okay, maybe I've been missing out on some things, but here I knew God really came to see me. I knew this is really who God was for me. And it's, it's kind of a marker for me that I can't, that I'm not going to be going behind in my life. So it's a permanent reminder of God's work in my life. So if I'm tempted to doubt his love for me or the memorial stone, the entry in my journal reminds me and forms a marker that I, that I will not be going behind. They're wonderful. That's a wonderful example of things we can do with our journal or with our more memorial stones. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. Another passage at the end of the chapter speaks to the faith of the disciples. So let's carry on. This is from Mark 6 again, verse 45. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, as their hearts were hardened. Pastor Kevin spoke on this passage recently, so I'll not go into detail. But again, after the disciples set out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, a violent storm came up, and Jesus came out to them walking on the water. Mark writes that they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. The disciples, again, have new miracles to add to their list. Jesus can walk on water and calm the waves. Mark goes on to say that their hearts were hardened. They resisted seeing the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, not only in the multiplication of the bread and fish, but also in Jesus' dominion over the natural world. Jesus wanted to show his disciples more of his divinity in order for them to understand who he really was. Is that the way we react when the power of Jesus breaks into our lives? Or have we missed those times when Jesus has changed our lives to meet our desperate needs? Perhaps by walking right past us. Perhaps Jesus has reached out to us 
met our need, changed, changed lives around us, changed things happening in our, in our world, but we've missed it. We've missed it. Jesus walked right past us, and we haven't realized what he's done for us. And we may pray for God to intervene on our behalf, then miss it when he acts on our prayers, only to realize later in retrospect that the world has changed for the better. Do you have a scroll of faith in your life? Do you have a scroll that lists what Jesus has done for you in the past and what you believe he can do in the future? And if, you, if I pulled up your scroll of faith, what would be on it? Perhaps it's the peace-giving peace Jesus who comforts you in times of anxiety. Perhaps it's the loving Jesus when he can sense your care, when you can sense his care in the stress of life. Maybe he provided for you a job when you needed it. He protected you when you were in a dangerous spot. He provided physical healing when you needed it the most. What if a new challenge comes along? Will you trust him to meet that as well? Is that challenge on your scroll? Is that something he can handle? Is that something he's willing to do for you? I like to pray, and and I sometimes wonder what it takes for Jesus to answer prayer. Do I have enough faith to see Jesus providing healing and hope and restoration for someone? I often wondered, where does the faith come from? I know faith must be involved in this exercise, but is it the faith of the person praying, or is it the faith of the person receiving prayer? Where is the faith involved? Can my faith as a prayer override someone else's faith as a prayee? <laughs> Something I've been, I was puzzling for a while. But what is faith? The writer of Hebrews writes, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. It's two ways of saying the same thing. So the people of Nazareth, as we know, displayed a definite lack of faith. Mark writes that this is why Jesus could perform so few miracles in that town, was their lack of faith. So how does faith play a part in Jesus' miracles? Clearly, a lack of faith limits his ability to work in a miraculous way. I've read that one does not have faith because one was healed. One has faith so that one can be healed. So one does not have faith because one was healed. One has faith so that one can be healed. The miracles in Mark are not attended as signs to induce belief. They are instead the visible, tangible fruits of faith. They're the fruit of faith, those miracles. So this is the opposite of what the Nazareans were thinking. In fact, our faith enables God to work in our lives. So it's our faith enabling God to change our lives for the better. And again, we can look at another passage in Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's from chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So 
What do we learn about faith in the miracles of Jesus? If we look in Scripture and the Gospels at his miracles, what, what are those common elements that we can learn about faith? So first of all, we learn that faith makes available to us the power of God. Faith makes available to us the power of God. If we look back at Mark 5, Jesus spoke to the, uh, the woman who was suffering. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your faith has healed you, Jesus said that woman. In Mark 10, it's very similar. Jesus said, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately the man received his height, sight and followed Jesus along the road. Your faith has healed you, Jesus said. So, in fact, Jesus does not expect perfect faith and trust in him. He knows our fears, our weaknesses. We're imperfect. We're, we're weak people. We go through a lot of difficulty and struggles. So our faith can be imperfect, and it can come with fear. It can come with doubt. But it must always be directed toward Jesus. He is the one we put our faith in. Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one we put our faith in. Secondly, we have seen that those seeking wholeness are persistent, persistent in seeking the Lord. Faith in God steps forward from the crowd to put ourselves in a place where we can acknowledge Jesus' power to heal. And we see lots of examples when Jesus is traveling through the countryside with his disciples. This crowd of people are following him, and people are running up, touching his garments, seeking healing, seeking hope. They're not just standing back, hoping it'll happen. They're persistent. They're reaching out. They're seeking him. Despite fear, although we might be fear and intimidated, faith reaches out to God and takes the first trembling steps forward to him. Reminds me of that uh, story in Luke 11 about the neighbor, the neighbor who has a neighbor at midnight. So one, one person has a friend who arrives at midnight. He's hungry. But the person he's visiting doesn't have any food in the house. So he goes to his neighbor and knocks on the door, bang, 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 this is at midnight. Open the door, give me some food. I have a friend arriving who's hungry. And the fellow says, go away, go to sleep. You're waking up my children. I don't want, go away. You know, I'm not interested in this. But is the persistence of a neighbor banging on the door will make a difference. And that person and his neighbor comes up, you know, comes forward and gets up and, and gives him the three loaves of bread that he's looking for. So it's persistence in seeking the Lord that God honors when we're praying to him. Thirdly, faith is just not a mental belief in, his, in Jesus' power. It results in steps of action. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just something we know in our minds that we're familiar with, that we've read about, that we've heard from somebody else. Oh, yeah, our faith has made a difference. But we're, it's changed our heart as well, and it steps out. It trusts God to do the work. It might be public and not held in secret. So it involves a personal encounter with Jesus, coming close to Jesus in prayer and worship, praying to God, worshiping God. That's part of the steps of action that we can take to put our faith and believe that Jesus can, can help us and can, we sense his love, we know of his love for us, and we reach out to him for help. And fourthly, faith is convinced that Jesus can meet our need. 
he's convinced that he's able to meet our need. And examples, again, in Scripture that show people who are desperate for the healing touch of the Lord. In many cases, there was no one, nowhere else for them to turn. But it wasn't as if Jesus was the last resort. As Ron said last week, he is the ultimate first responder. He's the first person we should go and see when we have a need, when we're struggling with something and things are going wrong in our lives, when we want to reach out and and get some help and answers to questions in our lives. He's the first one we should reach out to. He's the one true hope they had to meet their needs. So if we go back to our disciples, at that time their faith was not based on Jesus being the coming Messiah, the Son of God. They believed him to be a powerful, miracle-working prophet. Their faith was based upon what they had seen Jesus do in the past. They were convinced that he could repeat those miracles again, but were very surprised constantly and amazed at the new evidences of his power. Their faith was based on what they saw him do, not on who he was. They had their bucket list. They had their list of things that they, that Jesus had done in the past, and they expected him to, to repeat those things again. But they didn't faith base their faith on Jesus as the Messiah. So where do we place our faith? Where do we place our faith? Jesus taught his disciples to have faith in God. So over to Mark 11. This is verse 22. Jesus says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain... Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart that it will happen, but believes that what he says will come true, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you have asked for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." So what is on your scroll? What are on the list what's on the list of things that Jesus has done for you? Where are your memorial stones? They are all important things to remember. But don't base your faith on these things alone. Pastor Kevin has set a vision for our church to reach 10,000 people for the gospel. Is Jesus able to lead us to reach that goal? And do we have the faith to reach that goal? Is it, our, is it on our scroll as a church? Have we ever accomplished that in the past? Have we seen Jesus do that for us in the past? Have we seen Jesus do that for other churches in the past? Does that limit his ability to do that for us as a church? And what new challenges are in your life? Do you believe Jesus can meet these challenges? What about your faith? Do you have enough faith that Jesus can overcome those challenges, despite what he has done for you in the past? You know, having faith in Jesus does not 
will meet your need does not require that you're perfect. You don't have to be perfect to have that kind of faith. It doesn't mean that all your life is perfect. It means that even when part of your life is in turmoil, you're still in his love and care. Lack of faith is a rejection of who Jesus is and that his will for us is always best and that he died to pay the price for our disobedience and rebellion. So lack of faith is a rejection of who Jesus is and for his will for us, of his will for us, that it's always best. On the other hand, having faith is embracing the truth that nothing we can do will put us outside of Jesus' care and protection. Having faith is embracing the truth that nothing we can do will put us outside of Jesus' care and protection. Faith in Jesus is faith in him alone. Faith in Jesus is faith in Jesus alone. We can never step outside his love for us. We can never go beyond and step outside his love for us. We're going to take some time now uh, taking communion as a body of Christ together. And we have the communion table before us. If you're visiting us and if you've received Jesus in your heart, please join us. We'd love to have you take communion with us. If you've not taken that step of accepting Jesus as your Savior, just let the trays pass by. We've all been in that position before. It's interesting, following following the passage in Mark 11, I actually just read it. When he talks about faith, and he goes on to say, and when you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So Jesus is tying having a grudge or bitterness or something against anyone in the body of Christ. And actually beyond that, I think he's talking to people in the the world, anyone in the world. Your Father, Jesus, will not forgive our sins if we have that kind of grudge in our hearts. So Mark connects God not answering our faith prayers to holding a grudge or holding bitterness against anyone. It's interesting, in a similar way, Paul connects bringing judgment on oneself with taking the communion elements in an unworthy way. So if you look at, uh, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. This is uh, Paul writing, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So there's a connection there, isn't there? There's a bit of a connection where Paul says we need to examine ourselves before taking communion. And Jesus says, if you hold a grudge or bitterness against anyone, our our faith prayers won't be answered. So I'd like us to take some time now, just in quiet prayer, prepare your hearts for communion, make sure that you're not holding a grudge, bitterness against anyone else. Ask forgiveness, ask Jesus' forgiveness for that. Make sure your heart is clean before him, and we'll carry on. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. 
So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can celebrate this communion, this Eucharist, this Lord's Supper with you this morning, remembering the pain and suffering you took for us on the cross to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to pay the price for our sins. Thank you. We're internally indebted to you for welcoming us into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this bread together. Let's pray for the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this is the new covenant you've brought about in your blood. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate fellowship with you, fellowship with other believers, cleansing of our sins, hope in heaven, and a glorious time with you here on earth as believers. Lord, you're calling us, Jesus, you're calling us to come to you and place our hands in yours. You want to walk with us and hold us as we walk along the way, as we walk in faith, as we trust you in that way. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.